Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a world where rational scientific explanations are more available than ever, belief in the unprovable and irrational in the fringe is on the rise. There's a new book out called The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. The author, Colin Dickey, joins me for the hour today. We'll talk about everything from the Great Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876 to UFOs to QAnon and Pizzagate. Colin Dickey is a writer, speaker, and academic. He's made a career out of collecting unusual objects and hidden histories all over the country. A regular contributor to L.A. Review of Books and Lapham's Quarterly. He's the co-editor of the Morbid Anatomy Anthology and is the author previously of Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places. With a Ph.D. in comparative literature, uh, literature rather from the University of Southern California, he's an associate professor of creative writing at National University, and he's also a member of the Order of the Good Death, a collective of artists, writers, and death industry professionals interested in improving the Western world's relationship with mortality. And uh, we talked uh, in July. This uh, this uh, program was first broadcast in July of this year. So the title is The Unidentified, the uh, subtitle, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. Uh, is, do you see this as a continuation of the previous book or, or something completely different? Um, yeah, in some sense. I mean, my last book was on, on ghosts, uh, Ghostland and American History and Haunted Places, and, and I used that book to kind of talk about ghosts, less about, uh, you know, do they exist or, or you know, is it, is it all fake? Uh, and I was re- instead kind of more interested in, in the way that we tell ghost stories and what those stories tell us about, uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, our past American history, you know, how we, how we deal with and cope with death and, um, you know, and, and how we inhabit, you know, spaces that, uh, that we tend to think of as haunted. You know, why, why are Victorian mansions always haunted, but mid-century modern houses aren't? You know, and those, those kinds of questions. So I really kind of wanted to use the, the lens of, of ghosts to kind of understand a little bit about both our history and, um, you know, the, the spaces that we lived in. And I, I think this book is a, a continuation of that, um, you know, in the sense of, you know, it's a, it's a slight change in topic, uh, you know, looking at, um, you know, uh, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and, you know, things that get classed under the term uh, cryptids, um, you know, as well as UFOs and aliens and, and the lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria uh, being the other things I, I looked at in this book. Um, I think where, where it differs is, um, you know, with that last book, I was really looking at, you know, like spaces, you know, you know houses and you know, haunted hotels and stuff like that. This, this book, the thing that, that seemed to connect these, uh, these ideas had to do with a kind of sense of, of the, the borderlands, you know, the kind of frontiers. It seemed like, seemed to me that things like, you know, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and the Chupacabra and the Jersey Devil, you know, they all seem to exist kind of just on the, just on the edge of civilization. You know, they're, they're in the, the Redwood Forest just north of, you know, uh, the Bay Area in California, you know, or, or Area 51, which is, uh, you know, where, where the government supposedly is keeping, uh, you know, crashed spaceships and, you know, aliens and formaldehyde. And, and that's, you know, it's in the Nevada desert. It's, it's not too far from Las Vegas. It's just sort of you know, just on the other side of the hills from Las Vegas. And so, you know, this kind of sense of these things that, that populate our imagination um, just outside the edge of civilization seems to be, uh, you know, kind of where I ended up kind of, you know, locating this book, for, for lack of a better term. Uh, you, uh, you note that uh, these kinds of beliefs uh, are on the rise. Um, yeah, and, and that was something that I, I frankly surprised me when I first started looking into this. I mean, again, you know, I mean, uh, belief in ghosts is something that is is pretty universal across culture. You know, it goes back, you know, centuries, and you know, we've always had a kind of belief in ghosts uh, with us. Whereas, um, you know, the belief in you know, say Bigfoot. I mean, that's something that that really takes off in the in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and and I just kind of, I mean, I grew up with it as a kid. I remember, you know these stories of Bigfoot and, you know, thinking, oh, wouldn't that be cool to see something like that, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I kind of assumed that it, it had sort of been on the wane then and it was dying down. So when I, when I looked into this and I was surprised to find that something like, um, you know, uh, 14% or maybe it's, I think it's even more now, 14% of Americans believe in, in Bigfoot, which when I, when I did the numbers, I mean, that's not a small number of people. That's like, uh, you know, over 40 million people who believe in, in, in Bigfoot. And so that's, you know, it's, it's, these things are, are a significant part of our kind of cultural 
uh, subconscious, and 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 I think we we underestimate how many people are are interested in these things. And so, you know, maybe because we underestimate it, we we're we're prone to not take them you know as seriously. And I I felt like you know if that many people you know profess a belief in Bigfoot, there there must be something going on there. There must be some some kind of interest that that's worth kind of delving into. What's the impulse? Uh, do you think where where does this come from? There's there's an attraction, I think, conspiracy theories and these kind of beliefs, isn't there? Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so you know, I, I tried to with this book, I tried to look at things a little bit historically. I wanted to kind of take a step back from uh, you know some of the more contemporary conspiracy theories, which are kind of swirling all around and you know kind of dominating the headlines. It feels like some days, uh, and I wanted to maybe understand less about what was you know, the truth of the matter, and, and instead trying to understand sort of how these things evolved and how these things took shape over, over time. Because I, I, I guess, you know, I used to think that if somebody believed in one of these things, all you had to do was kind of show them the truth and, you know, show them some facts, um, you know, and ask them skeptical questions, and you could, you could convince them otherwise. But, you know, that never works. That never seems to work. And I, I think instead... You have to kind of accept that, you know, the, uh, you know these, these beliefs, whether they're, you know, belief in the Loch Ness Monster, kind of, you know, one of these, you know, uh, you know darker conspiracy theories or whatever, they're often motivated by something uh, much more deep-seated and primal. And you, you kind of have to understand, I think, a little bit more about those kind of primal needs and, and what, that, what that conspiracy theory is actually doing for that person. Um, because if you don't understand that, then, then no amount of, you know, factual debunking is going to change anybody's mind. I was reading an article on uh, QAnon, um, and the the the, the uh, writer of the article interviewed some people who are adherents to this uh, conspiracy theory. And one of the things one of the ladies said is is you know one of the things that she finds she finds it comforting. She finds I guess a sense of community uh, in in this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and and that's definitely the case. And you see that. I mean that in all sorts of these communities, um, be they, you know, believers in QAnon or, you know, ghost hunters or, um, you know, Bigfoot hunters or whatever. I mean, yeah, you, you, it becomes a kind of self-selecting group and you kind of, um, you come together over this shared belief and that becomes, you know, really tantamount. You know, I, I went to a, I, I, uh, I went to a flat earth conference and I, you know, I unfortunately couldn't get this in the book because it didn't quite fit, but, um, you know, what you saw in the, at the flat earth conference was, again, these people who had sort of come together around a shared idea and uh, flat earth is, is pretty far out there. And one of the, and you know, once you actually start to ask any kind of question, pretty much the whole thing falls apart because it's, it's so ludicrous. Um, and they, they seem to understand that because they were very clear that they weren't going to get into specifics about how the, their, their flat earth model worked because, you know, they kind of all knew that once you did that, everything would fall apart. So they would, they kind of tiptoed around the actual mechanics of how, flat earth would work and they just instead kind of focused it and focused on the fact that they all believed that the earth was flat you know and they all just kind of you know kind of shared that basic assumption and then you know very tactfully avoided getting into the mechanics because they knew everything was going to come to pieces at that point hmm. um and i want to get into some of these things that are just fascinating uh, of course, we have to talk about the Kentucky meat shower. I imagine you're talking about that every time you talk to people like me. Um, but, uh, of course, these things are not inconsequential, right? Um, the, you know, a fellow got in his car, drove to Washington, D.C. to save people at a pizza establishment because he believed in Pizzagate. Uh, people, like at least planned to storm Area 51. I don't know if they did, but, uh, you know, the, this isn't inconsequential. Oh no, it's it's not inconsequential at all. And and again, I think that's the thing is we 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 laugh at these things because we think they're they're kind of you know silly and unserious. But then you know oftentimes they can have really dramatic consequences. And you know uh, just recently there was a, uh, you know news of this guy who um, you know tried to assassinate this this federal judge and ended up killing you know her son and and wounding her her husband. And he he was a longstanding conspiracy theorist that you know felt that. You know, there was some feminist conspiracy targeting men or whatever. And, uh, you know, he was well known uh, among, you know, a certain set of, of uh, you know, journalists who, who regularly ridiculed this guy because his, his beliefs were so outlandish. You know, he, he thought that uh, Ladies' Nights was a, a, an organized conspiracy against men or something like that. And so, it, you know, he was, he was a, a joke for years until, you know, he decided to, to, to turn violent. So I think that, you know, yeah, it's like, you know, you want to be careful. You don't want to give this stuff too much oxygen because that, 
that tends to fuel it. But you also have to kind of keep one eye on it because, um, you know, these, these things are not without consequence. And, you know, yeah, we had the, the attempted storming of Area 51, you know, last fall. But even before that, uh, in the 90s, uh, there was a, there was a there was a guy who who decided he was going to try and get onto Area 51, and he, he showed up. Uh, you know, at least so he claimed. Uh, you know, showed up and tried to sort of intimidate the, the military police into, you know, uh, you know, uh, letting him onto onto the base, and uh, and that that was uh, uh, the uh, the guy who ended up bombing. Um, um, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm blanking a little bit. Um, the the, uh, the Utah bomber. Um, you know, the the federal uh, building in Utah that was. Um, uh, that kind of anti-government conspiracy also sort of, you know, played into that kind of Area 51 paranoia as well. So, so these things all all are interrelated in this kind of unsettling way. So, uh, these kinds of beliefs on the rise, according to surveys, um, and, and you know, translated into action, sometimes violent action, is 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 this different? Is is it increasing in intensity or in kind from? you know, past decades or, or past centuries? Um, I, you know, I think these things wax and wane all the time, and it's, it's hard to say objectively, you know. Um, you know, it certainly feels uh, like we're in a very intense time right now, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do, I think these things uh, gain traction when the world seems sort of uncertain and seems out of control and seems, you know, chaotic and random, and people who, you know, I, I mean, we all kind of struggle in those moments, but there are some folks who um, respond to that kind of fear of, of randomness and chaos by gravitating towards theories that supposedly kind of explain things and, and, and do so through, you know, conspiratorial uh, suggestions. And, I, you know, again, I mean, a, you know, a, a good example is what's happening right now with this, this COVID-19 pandemic where, you know, it's a very unsettling, scary time, and particularly in the early months when, you know, we just didn't know a lot of, you know, you know, scientists were telling us, you know, they, they weren't exactly sure how the virus was spreading. They weren't exactly sure how to how best to fight it. Um, you know, so there was just a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of, you know, uh, you know, uh, misinformation, intentional or unintentional. And it became a breeding ground for conspiracy theorists because what they were able to do was they were able to posit, you know, various, um, you know, explanations for what was going on. And even if those explanations were, you know, malevolent and scary, at least they, they provided an order to the chaos. And that um, that was sort of perversely comforting to, I think, a large segment of the population. I think that is a, that is a key theme, isn't it? Uh, people are looking for order out of the chaos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a psychological study that I like. Uh, that was done about 10 years ago where, where they show that the researchers would show people two images. And one of them was just a bunch of, you know, scribbly lines, like just sort of visual static. Um, and then the other one had that same sort of scribbly lines and visible, you know, visible static. But behind it all, there was a drawing of like a, like a simple drawing of like a hat or something like that. And they show these two images to people and they, they show them the one with the hat and they say, you know, can you see anything there? And they say, yeah, I see a hat. And they say, okay, good. Uh, and then they show the other one, the one that's just pure visual static, and, and they say, you know, do you, do you see anything there? And some people would say, no, I just see lines, and other people would say, you know, I see a horse or I see a car or whatever. You know, they would try and find a shape in, they would try and find a pattern in amongst the, you know, just the, the lines there. And when they did a kind of psychological profile of these these two groups, what they found is that, you know, people who felt that their lives were in one way or another, you know, out of control, uh, you know, or felt like they had less control, were more anxious about their ability to control, you know, the, the, the factors in their life. Those were the ones who saw a shape where there wasn't any shape, you know, and, and, and the conclusion the researchers come to is that, yeah, when, when we feel that our lives are chaotic and random, we will look for patterns, even where patterns don't exist, because it's a way of sort of uh, creating some kind of order in a, in a chaotic world. And as you point out, you go back in history, this impulse has always been there, right? And um, at least going back, you know, quite a ways. Um, do you think this is made worse by disinformation, misinformation on social media? These, this, this, you know, bad information can, can get out more quickly? Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely the case. I mean, I, you know, I feel I, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I think, yes, absolutely. 
uh, social media has provided a platform for amplifying a lot of this garbage. And, you know, the way that algorithms are, are written, um, they tend to push people towards, uh, you know, things that, that elicit, you know, the greatest response and, you know, both positively and negatively. So they, they, they tend to drive people towards these kind of crazier ideas and they tend to reward behavior of somebody who sort of starts to embrace, uh, you know, these, these darker conspiracy theories. So I think that is definitely true, and that is that is something that I think we really have to hold, uh, you know, tech companies like Facebook and YouTube, we really have to, to hold them responsible for for the way in which they're poisoning the discourse. Uh, at the same time, though, I also feel like it's we can't just we can't just put it all at the feet of social media because it's sort of a way of absolving ourselves from responsibility to say it's it's just a technological problem. When you know, as you say, these things do, you know, they definitely predate. The, the current moment, and they're 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 part of a kind of hardwired response to to human behavior that I think we have to be aware of. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and my guest for the hour is Colin Dickey, uh, who is author most recently of the Unidentified: Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. We'll have more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Assistive Technology Program. The holidays are going to look different this year, but even though family gatherings are smaller, they can still be fun. Games similar to Scrabble, Pictionary, Trivial Pursuit, and Karaoke are available to play on your phone with family and friends. Information at utap.usu.edu. COVID resources. Support also comes from the Law Office of Attorney Tess A. Davis, providing legal services and assisting clients in all areas of family law, including divorce, complex custody issues, and high-conflict divorce litigation involving large marital estates. Information at TessDavisLaw.com. Coming up on Hanukkah Lights, a story that gives thanks for unexpected gifts. Another yearns for bright days to be long again. A young woman finds herself searching for a sense of belonging. A family finds faith after tragedy. And we end on a redemptive story you don't want to miss. I'm Susan Stamberg. And I'm Murray Horwitz. Tune in for an all-new Hanukkah Lights from NPR. Tune in Friday morning, December 11th at 10 a.m. here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U-Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Colin Dickey, author most recently of The Unidentified. The subtitle is Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. We're talking uh, today about everything from the Great Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876 to UFOs to QAnon and uh, Pizzagate. And uh, this uh, conversation was first broadcast in July. You, you mentioned earlier, do you... you, uh, you I guess you used to. You you have tried to talk adherence to conspiracy theories out of it. Did, did uh, were you did, referring to that generally, or, or have you tried to have these conversations? Oh well, I think you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, all of us have tried to have this conversation, mm-hmm. probably with a you know, like a relative over Facebook. You know, it's, it's, it's right. Sort of, you know, I, I, I you know everybody's had that thing where somebody you know or, or a coworker or somebody you know casually, maybe even somebody close to you, but. You know, post a thing on Facebook where you where you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you know so and so is is actually falling for this nonsense. And so, so of course, you know, you know your your gut response is to just you know get into the the comments and say, look, this is all BS. You know, it's it's not true. Here's here's some facts. You know, and it becomes this kind of you know this kind of flame war between you and that person where they they throw a bunch of you know dumb facts back at you, and you know, and and then at some point you realize like. You know, why is this not working? Why am I unable to convince somebody of something that's so obvious? And, and again, that's when I, I you know, I, after doing that for years on social media, I realized, you know, it's, it's more than just having the facts. Although, although, although that's incredibly important and incredibly necessary, it's also about why is this person clinging to this belief? And, and specifically, what does this belief do for that person? What is it, what psychological need is it, um, you know, responding to? that the, the actual facts can't touch for whatever reason, and, you know, how do I address it in that, on that front? Yeah, I think we've, we've all uh, maybe had that experience where you, you eventually find out that uh, if a person's really into a conspiracy theory, they're impervious to, to facts, at least as we see them. Um, 
And it's, so you, you talk about confirmation bias. You, you, you put this forward as a theory, you know, why people hold so, cling so tightly to some of these theories. Right. And, I, you know, I mean, you know, confirmation bias, which is basically, you know, you, you have some sort of, you know, preordained belief. And so you tend to pick and choose among the available facts in order to, um, you know, make your case. And that, that is, I mean, it's not, it's not great, but it, honestly, it's something we all do. I do it all the time. You know, I think it's really hard not to do that. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's just a sort of inevitable part of human nature. You know, you know, we should try and be better, but whatever. You know, what, what seems to, you know, I think what happens where confirmation bias kind of slides into conspiracy theories is when you, your belief is so out of line with, the facts on the ground that you can't even pick and choose among the available facts to make your case. And so, um, you know, I think like, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you could reasonably make a case that, uh, I don't know, that the prevalence of, of guns in the United States didn't cause more school shootings or workplace shootings or whatever. I mean, you know, maybe there, you know, there was some, there was some gray area, there's some wiggle room there, but but now the, the facts are pretty overwhelming. You know, it's pretty hard to ignore just based on comparison of other countries, et cetera, that it's just, you know, like, yes, we, the, the more guns we have, the more mass shootings we have. And that, that seems the, the facts are pretty overwhelming at this point. And so what happens for some people is rather than sort of change their beliefs about guns, what they do is they start to doubt the facts. And so that's in its most extreme form is where you get, you know, these, these Sandy Hook truthers, the people who, who are sort of arguing that these mass shootings literally aren't happening, um, you know, that they have their confirmation bias has sort of ceased to protect them from, uh, you know, this kind of overwhelming onslaught of facts. So, so rather than, you know, change the, the beliefs, they've now decided to, to change the facts themselves and start to argue that this is all just a, an elaborate hoax and a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel... <laughs> It's weird. These are strange times we live in. I feel the need to to pause and point out that that is, that kind of a belief is appalling, right? But the, the fact it, they just yeah. keep oh, yeah, coming, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I think it, it's also a facet of our of our heavily mediated world that um, you can you know somebody can can look and see grieving parents, uh, you know, who have just lost their their children in a, in a tragic and senseless act of violence, and say. So those people are, are just acting for the cameras. You know, there's such a disconnect between that basic level of empathy that, you know, I think most of us think is sort of just a, you know, a crucial part of what, what makes us human. Um, but we're so used to seeing things through mediated experiences like, you know, television or social media or whatever, that, that it becomes a filter by which we can say, you know, oh, that thing didn't happen. And, I, you know, I think there's, it is, it's a very appalling kind of, you know, like just disconnect from, um, our basic humanity that is that is driven by a kind of refusal to accept what's what's right in front of you, and and so to, going back to what you said before, there you know to reach such a point, um, I get I, I'm not trying to justify it at all, but to, there must be you know some very great need in those people to I guess order the world or see the world as they as they have they need that they need to see it. Yeah, exactly. And again, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think that it is. Um, it is giving them any any uh, any credit or whatever to say yes. There there's some in in many cases there's some overriding psychological need. It's just a sort of an indication that if you actually want to you know engage and change this kind of behavior, it, it it is it is helpful to sort of recognize that there is that need going on because then you can say, um, look, if I can if I can address that somehow, or if I can provide, if I can if I can get to the I can get to the disease rather than the symptom, you know, I can clear up the symptom, you know, rather than just try and, you know, hit the symptom with a bunch of facts that are just going to fall on deaf ears. Mm. There seems to be a, I think there's, the strain has been there before, but it seems to be intensifying, at least my view, uh, you know, strain of anti-science, anti-fact. Um, and to get us into that, I want to go back to the, uh, to, to the great Kentucky meat shower and to Charles Fort. Uh, so, uh, so, so tell us about this. this is 1876, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, the Great Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876 when um, a woman and her grandson are, are out, out outdoors and, uh, on a bright, uh, you know, cloudless, uh, clear sky day in, uh, in Olympia Springs, Kentucky, when um, all of a sudden meat starts falling from the sky. Um, and uh, these these sort of 
you know, bizarre chunks of meat. Nobody exactly knows where they came from, uh, but they, they, they fall all over the ground in a, like a, you know, like a hundred square foot patch, basically. Um, and, um, you know, the townspeople show up, they, they find this meat, they, they pick it up off the ground, they put some of it in jars for storage. Um, a couple of, uh, extremely brave, foolhardy souls decide to uh, try and taste the meat, see if they can identify it through taste, which I, I can't say I recommend. Um, you know, they, they, they can't figure it out. Um, but this, this, for better or for worse, um, you know, it, it sort of enters into the scientific record, and you have, um, you have scientists in, you know, in, in legitimate scientific journals who are doing their best to kind of figure out, you know, what happened here. You know, I mean, you've got, you know, somebody... You know, suggest well maybe it was uh, you know frog spawn or or, or no stock, which is kind of weird kind of fungal um, uh, growth that sort of can look like sort of spontaneous growth or something like that. You know, and th- those those theories don't really pan out. Those don't really work. Um, you know, so so the, the the scientific community kind of tries their best to kind of understand and um, throws out some hypotheses, but none of them are great. Some are better than others, and then it kind of you know, kind of moves on and is like, I don't know, you know, and, and so, uh, so that's 1876. And, and it is, it, you know, and I think this, this, this is an important kind of evolution in our culture. It's, it's around the time when science ceases to be the kind of thing that just some sort of well-to-do guy could do, you know, in his study with a, with a microscope and, you know, a lot of dedication. And it starts to be a thing that, you know, is, is, um, is institutionalized, right? You know, it starts to be a thing you, you, you have to go to university for. You have to get a PhD to, to do this kind of work. You have to, you know, join a, you know, a, a medical association or something like that. You know, you have to be part of a larger group and join an institution. And it's sort of with the kind of institutionalization of science that almost immediately you get that that pushback. You get that kind of, um, you know, this kind of rise of a kind of, you know, splendid amateur who who just sort of rejects all of that and thinks, you know, well, I can I can do that work. You know, I can do it myself. I can do it. Uh, you know, I can discover a new, uh, you know, creature, a new, you know, uh, primate just by going out into the woods with a with a camera and you know a little bit of moxie or whatever. You know, I mean, you you know, you get this idea that 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 the institutionalization of science is its, its great downfall, and and um, and you get the rise of people who uh, you know, for better or worse, get get categorized under this term. Uh, you know, they're called cranks. You know, the crank is somebody who has this scientific hypothesis um, that is really far-fetched and, and, and quite extreme, but which, you know, they sort of double down and they'll, you know, kind of pick and choose amongst the, the various, uh, you know, facts as available in order to make this, this theory. Um, you know, so, you know, famous one, and you know, one that, you know, kind of starts the book is this guy, Ignatius Donnelly, who argues that, um, you know, the lost continent of Atlantis is, is real. And he, you know, his, his book becomes a bestseller because it sort of looks scientific. You know, he, he talks about, you know, archaeological records and anthropology and, you know, stuff like that. But it's just, it's, it's not, you know, he's not a trained archaeologist. He just sort of thinks that he can kind of prove this, like, with kind of, you know, an armchair approach to things. And so, um, so you know, the kind of the, the Kentucky meat shower, I think, is a really great example of this thing that, like, sort of flies in the face of both, you know, institutional science, because, in, you know, like, you know, scientists, they, they tried and they couldn't quite figure it out. Um, and yet it doesn't really lend itself to these kind of grand, weird theories like, you know, Ignatius Donnelly was putting forward. And it instead becomes the, uh, the provenance of, of this guy, Charles Ford, um, who starts writing... And in the in the 19 teens, this book, uh, the Book of the Damned, and um, and the the title refers to you know his idea that some facts are just are just damned; they're just excluded from mainstream science, and that doesn't mean they're fake. It just means that mainstream science doesn't want to deal with them. You know, so he talks about the Kentucky meat shower. He talks about um, you know, there's all these records of you know frogs falling from the sky and you know fish that turn to blood and all these very bizarre things that he just catalogs and. He doesn't try and advance really a theory for them. He just puts them out there as, you know, you got to admit that, that something happened here, even if it doesn't kind of fit your, your easy and convenient scientific truths. And so that, that I think, you know, becomes a, a real kind of third way of understanding the world in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, and thus we get the, the, the adjective 40, you know, something that is 
as bizarre and unexplainable, but yet is sort of hovering on the edge of our consciousness. And Fort, um, I don't know if he started this, but he certainly was in this camp of, you know, anti-authority, right? Meaning authority not only government, but uh, but experts, anti-expert, anti-science, I guess. That I myself can, can have uh, facts that, damned though they may be by the mainstream, they're still facts to me, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's of this trend of, of really um, kind of railing against, you know, the, what he saw as sort of the institutional uh, bent of, of science, scientific inquiry that, you know, that it is, is hidebound by these institutions. Um, but, you know, he, he starts in his career, the, the first book he writes is a real, uh, you know, kind of crank book where he, he advocates this really wild theory um, about how, you know, human behavior is controlled by radio waves beamed from the planet Mars or something like that. Uh, it never gets published, and, and the manuscript is lost, so we, we don't really, we don't know exactly what it's about. We only know kind of from descriptions in his letters where he's sort of, you know, describing a kind of vague overview of it. Um, you know, and that, that, again, that's the very sort of crank way of looking at the world to sort of provide a theory. Um, and, and I think what's really interesting about Ford is as sort of, you know, anti-institutional as he was, he ultimately decided not to advance his own sort of weird conspiracy theories, but again, just kind of put this stuff out there and and just lay it on the table. And I think, you know, the Book of the Damned, as a result, is a really fascinating and really fun book to read. I mean, it's still it's still just a great book because, you know, it goes off on all these tangents. It, it describes all these things without ever really trying to give you some sort of wild or far-fetched or conspiratorial theory to explain it. He just kind of says, like, hey, look, well, you know, I don't know, so, you know, science won't talk about this, but it happened, and, you know, somebody should, somebody should just at least acknowledge that these things happened. That brings up an interesting point. Uh, you know, if a conspiracy theory is going to live, it, it, it probably can't be boring, right? It's got, it's got to pique the imagination some way, shape, or form, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of how these things start. You know, I mean, they, they're, they're fascinating you know, they, they offer some really bizarre, but um, but maybe something that, you know, still kind of makes some kind of modicum of sense. Um, and that's really what, you know, kind of, you know, gets a conspiracy theory kind of kind of going. I mean, there I remember when I was a teenager in California, you know, there was this guy with his van who would always drive around, you know, Berkeley and Santa Cruz and the Bay Area. And the, and the van said in big letters, uh, Stephen King shot John Lennon. Um, and, uh, and that was his conspiracy theory, and it said, evidence proves or you win the ban, and if you try to engage him, he would give you this, this really elaborate, crazy thing. And it was, you know, it was kind of, kind of fun and weird to kind of, you know, engage with him, and I think he's now, he, he's given up the van, but now he's got a website. Um, but, you know, but, but you could see how it was so idiosyncratic that it, it never really, it never really became a movement. You know, it was always just this one guy, because, you know, as weird and wild as it was and kind of fun as it was to kind of, you know, you know, hear him try and sort of argue for this case. It didn't it didn't tap into that that uh, there was nothing about it that kind of, you know, captured that that deeper need or that, you know, kind of um, thing that kind of would give somebody else some reason to really buy into it. And so as a, as a result, I don't think he ever really got too many adherents to his his, uh, his belief. By the way, parenthetically, you know, I don't want to get too political, but it's, well, I'll ask you, um, well, I'll just state it. it. It is extraordinary by any measurement to have the president of the United States uh, having, for example, you know, given a hat tip to uh, Alex Jones. And I, I can't tell whether it's one yeah. one, oh, yeah. one showman to another or whether the president believes some of the, what Alex Jones says, you know, he'd, but he is the president of the United States and he's, <laughs> he's tipping the hat to, uh, you know, to a guy like Alex Jones. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that you find among conspiracy theorists is often it comes from a place of feeling uh, like they have lost or they are, that they're powerless, right? You know, that if you, if you are feeling that you're powerless, you, you then imagine some sort of conspiracy that justifies what's happening to you. You know, it's like, it's not that I am unable to get my screenplay produced and be made into a, you know, Hollywood blockbuster. It's that the Scientologists are personally conspiring against me to keep me down, right? You know, it sort of like abdicates your own sort of responsibility for, you know, your own powerlessness. And, 
so you're used to seeing that with people who, who literally don't have a lot of power. And it's very bizarre to see it from, you know, the president of the United States, you know, nominally one of the most powerful people in the world to sort of act as though um, they, you know, that, that he, he's sort of on the fringe and that he's, you know, he doesn't have power or something like that. But I think, you know, my sense is that what's happening with somebody like, like the president is that he's, he's tapping into uh, a sense of a, of a group of people. I mean, his voters are, they tend to be uh, older, they tend to be, you know, white, they tend to be conservative. And that, that, is, that is a group of people that, that historically has had quite a bit of political power in this country. But uh, due to demographic change and just sort of the changing nature of, of the country, are seeing the glimpses of that that political power starting to wane, and so you, you you can see again. It's not it's not that they literally lack power because they still have quite a bit, but they are starting to see a world in which they might lose some of that power, and and thus are looking to you know conspiracy theories to explain why that why that has happened, and they end up with you know George Soros and the Illuminati and the lizard people and whatever. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're visiting a conversation from July with Colin Dickey, uh, talking about his book, The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. And we'll have more following this. La programación en Utah Public Radio es patrocinada parcialmente por el programa de extensión de USU. Cuidar su salud física y mental es esencial durante la pandemia. Para mantener su bienestar personal, vea sugerencias en el sitio stayhappystayhealthy.usu.edu. This is Craig Jessup, director of the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, inviting you to celebrate Christmas with the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra and Utah Public Radio. During this time when public performances are limited, UPR will broadcast the 2016 concert featuring AFC's first performance with Gentry. Tune in Friday, December 11th at 1 and 7 p.m. here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Colin Dickey. Uh, his latest book is The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. We first broadcast this uh, program in July. I want to talk a little bit about, have you talk a little bit about UFOs, because that, that was, uh, I mean, it's still continuing, you know, um, might be one of those topics where people are continuing to increase in belief uh, in aliens. Um but, you know, 1950s is kind of an intersection of a lot of things there, where it was sort of kind of the, the, the birth or the or the, the explosive growth of UFO belief. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, and again, this is, uh, this is one of the things I wanted to do with the book, is maybe give a kind of historical sweep of how something could go from being, uh, you know, kind of benign and a, just kind of a sense, you know, of like a kind of wondrous, you know, world out there and how that can sort of slowly evolve through the years into something a lot more darker and sinister. And I think, you know, the, the evolution of, of UFO belief is a, is a good example of how that happened. And, you know, basically in, in the late 1940s, you start seeing these sightings, uh, you know, of these unidentified flying objects, and nobody knows what they, they really are at first. But, you know, everybody, everybody's sort of on board with the fact that they, they exist. You know, I mean, there's lots of news reports. Uh, there are lots of sightings. There are lots of photographs. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, the, the world is kind of primed for this event to happen. They're, they're primed for the saucer to land in D.C. and the guy to come out in the silver jumpsuit and say, we come in peace. And then everybody, you know, sort of ushered into this new age of golden peace and prosperity. And we dismantle nuclear weapons and everything's great. Right? Um, but that that doesn't happen, you know, and, and the, the more time that goes on, the more it becomes clear that that's that's not going to happen. And so, you know, a, a large segment of the population just responds by saying, well, I guess, you know, I guess we were wrong. I guess those were just, you know, hoaxes or sunspots or, you know, just kind of weird unexplained phenomenon. And uh, the aliens are not going to be landing anytime soon. And I'm going to go back to my life. Um, the people who, who stick with that belief, um, they have to come up with some mechanism to explain why the aliens aren't arriving when when they should have come by now and uh what happens by the by the 70s and 80s is that the best explanation for that belief is that 
uh, there's some kind of government cover-up, right? Because that, that's, that's a good mechanism that explains things. Because then you can say, yes, the aliens have come, they've visited us, they're here, um, but the, the Air Force, uh, you know, grabbed them or picked up the wrecked spaceship or the alien bodies and they stuck them in formaldehyde in Area 51 and they're hiding them from us. And that explains, that's a kind of neat and convenient explanation for, you know, why this kind of promised event hasn't happened on time. Um, it's just that it involves a fair amount of paranoia and uh, government distrust. So, so something that starts out pretty benign and just kind of like, you know, yeah, this is going to happen. We've got these extraterrestrial neighbors. It's really cool. It's going to be fun. That has now sort of morphed into the government is keeping secrets from us. There are dark, malevolent forces in the FBI and the CIA and the Department of Defense, and they're all conspiring against humanity to keep this very important thing from us. And so, so that you know, so that's that's the way you know one of the ways in which we get to the 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 moment where we are today, where you know, oftentimes that that conspiracy theory becomes a sort of convenient mechanism for explaining why something you think should have happened hasn't happened yet, and and as a result, you get these sort of dark and sinister accusations about you know whomever you know again you know it could be the government, could be the, the Freemasons, you know whatever, but you know that's how those kind of things work. I want to go back to this idea of, you know, the, the, the belief in conspiracy theory can start one way, maybe, per, per, you know, kind of innocent and can turn darker. And I want to uh, read a quote uh, you, you gave. A, I was reading an interview you gave to another outlet. I want to read this uh, verbatim. Uh, you say, particularly a belief in aliens is often a gateway drug to some particularly vile anti-governmental conspiracy theories and also often sort of racially charged or just racist conspiracy theories. And you go on to say, you you know, part of what you want to do in the book is push back against this. So that's an interesting idea, that uh, belief in one area can maybe be a gateway drug to darker conspiracy theories. Yeah, so so there's this guy, William Cooper. So William Cooper is uh, this guy who shows up on the, the kind of alien uh, belief community in the in the early 1980s. And, he you know, he's, a, he's an ex-Navy guy, and he says, you know, I was on this ship. Uh, we we saw this thing, and then you know they hushed it all up, and uh, you know there's proof out there that aliens are real. I you know I saw it, but you know the my commanding officer made me you know promise I'd never reveal anything. You know so you get some traction. You know people are interested. People think oh maybe this is this is the government cover up. You know so uh, so he he enjoys some popularity, and he sort of you know establishes some street cred uh, within the UFO community in the 80s. By the 90s, he has evolved quite significantly, and um, he ultimately publishes this book um, uh, called Behold a Pale Horse, and it is uh, it's a really fascinating, although really difficult to read, um, uh, kind of compendium of all his, his crazy conspiracy theories, all these various uh, accusations he has against, you know, the, not just the government, but the Illuminati, and, uh, you know, in it he, he reprints the, um, you know, the kind of uh, notorious, uh, uh, you know, uh, plagiarized pamphlet, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which, you know, alleges that the Jews control, you know, the world. And he sort of, you know, he sort of has networked in, you know, these deeply anti-Semitic conspiracy theories alongside his, you know, his governmental conspiracy theories and, you know, his, his alien conspiracy theories. And they're all sort of part of this whole thing. And so, you know, William Cooper's Behold a Pale Horse becomes a way to kind of, you know, quote-unquote, sort of introduce a lot of, um, you know, UFO believers into this idea that, that maybe there's, there's you know, some, some grander conspiracy and it involves, um, you know, it involves the Jewish people, you know, all this other sort of crazy stuff. And that, that then becomes a kind of mainstay of a, of a certain very dark brand of, of conspiracy theories. And William Cooper, of course, um, you know, ends up, uh, stopping uh, to pay his uh, stop paying his uh, federal income tax and, and ends up dying in a in a firefight several months after uh, the attacks on, uh, on the World Trade Center in two thousand one. Hmm. We're reaching the end of our time, um, and I want to ask you. I don't know if there's a solution. Uh, you know, some of these beliefs are you know um, not going to hurt anybody, but, but others are can potentially be dangerous to individuals or to society. And certainly, the an overall, um, you know, growing sentiment of anti anti science, uh, you know, in that way can be can be harmful. Um, what 
what could be done to, to push back? Right. And again, I mean, I want, I want to make sure that, you know, with this book and, you know, with our talk today, you know, I, I want to still make a space for that desire for, you know, the wondrous and the unexplainable, because, you know, that stuff still is out there. I mean, one of the reasons I focus on the Great Kentucky Meat Shower, other than the fact that it's really gross and, and really wonderful, <laughs> is that, you know, I don't have a good explanation for it. I, I, I literally, I, you know, I did so much research. I tried every, you know, possible, you know, hypothesis. I went in search of the last remaining piece of meat, which is in a jar in uh, uh, Transylvania University in Kentucky. Um, so, you know, like, and I couldn't come up with anything. I couldn't come up with anything that felt satisfying. And I, you know, and I wanted to sort of keep a space for those kind of things that, yes, there, there are still weird and unexplainable things, and you can love those things, and you can, you can be interested in those things, and you can, you can, uh, you can go down those rabbit holes without necessarily falling into a kind of anti-science, conspiratorial, you know, kind of crank philosophy. And I think that, you know, one of the things I, I really tried to sort of do in the book is sort of open up a space that says, you know, like it's possible to sort of embrace the, the mysterious and the wondrous without straying too far into these kind of much more problematic ways of looking at the world. And so, you know, hopefully... Um, you know, hopefully what I'm able to do with the book and, you know, hopefully is, you know, we can kind of find our way back from this moment where, you know, just because you want to believe that there's, there's more out there in the world doesn't necessarily follow that you have to embrace, you know, these kind of crazy, wild, uh, you know, dark conspiracy theories. So, you know, that's, that's what I hope one mm-hmm. can maybe take away from this. By the way, um, can you, can you get that sense of wonder, you know, without, without totally going down the rabbit hole, do you think? Oh yeah, I mean yeah, and absolutely. And I, I think that's the thing is you know for a lot of people they get that they get that same sense of wonder and majesty just through you know through religion through you know contemplating the divine and I think that you know that's 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 a very similar impulse for a lot of people and I think you know that's that's great and I think other people get that through mainstream science. I mean there's still so much we don't know you know about how the universe works. Or there's so much we don't know about you know what's at the bottom of the ocean. I mean there's so many different ways that we can kind of seek out that wonder and awe. Um, so, so the stuff that I write about in the book, I mean, you know, that's, that's another avenue. And I, and again, some of it I think is harmless. Some of it I think is fun. I mean, if you want to spend your weekends out in the forest looking for Bigfoot, I think that's a, that's a great way to spend your time. I mean, I don't know what you're going to find, but it's, it's fun to be out in nature in that way. I, you know, I did, I did some cryptid hunting for the book and I, you know, I had a blast. It was, it was wonderful. So, you know, I, yeah, there, there are a lot, there's so many different ways to find that in this world. And, um, and I really, I, I really hope that we can still kind of, you know, keep a space open for the, for the joy and wonder that, that comes with those kind of pursuits. Well, it's a good place to end the conversation. By the way, we didn't even get to Lemurians and uh, the Gloucester Sea Monster. Uh, so you'll have to read the book. Uh, there's much, much else. Uh, there did fascinating, fascinating book, uh, The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. Colin Dickey, the author, has joined us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Tanya Gibson. Over the past year, my soup game has strengthened slowly. While I love soup, I had only a small repertoire of homemade varieties, the main one being a corn chowder. And my soup was good, passable, really, but definitely lacking in any layered intricacies. That is what I really wanted to change. As the winter settles in around us, I started a list of soups with which to experiment. The colder temperature, the more frequently soup lands on our menu during the week. It's usually quick and filling and a family favorite. Each person in the family has varieties that are our favorite, and because they are so different from one another and can easily be eaten without feeling an overlap, I want to perfect each of them with the goal of having a spring soup week to celebrate the changing seasons. This seems a reasonably attainable goal and something to distract from the bone-chilling realities of the out-of-doors. This fall, I started with my corn chowder and made it once a week for a few weeks in a row, changing it just a little each time. The first change was substituting heavy cream for the milk that I traditionally used. It was definitely creamier and thicker and had instant positive reactions. The next thing I did was sweat the onions and peppers in butter first before moving on to the other steps. That was a definite change from the dump everything in method I had used for years and one that started the layering of flavors I was looking for. The final change was the addition of shrimp. 
Unfortunately, I only added the cooked shrimp straight at the end to warm through, which added little to the flavor of the soup. The next round, I'll be sauteing the shrimp and garlic and butter before adding it at the end. All in all, however, the changes were positive and directly on the path I was looking for. The next soup I'm tackling is green chili stew. A good green chili stew is spicy, but not overwhelming. The meat is tender and flavorful, and the broth and potatoes are reminiscent of a hearty beef soup. I'm thinking of adding both sautéed green chili as well as my usual canned and making sure fresh garlic plays a starring role. Since potatoes seem to readily absorb any salt added, I'm wondering if I should pressure cook them and set them aside, adding them at the very end instead of nearer the beginning, which is what I normally do. I'm also going to play around with the type of meat I add. Stew cubes, stir-fry strips, hamburger, and possibly some pork are all up for consideration. I'm already salivating at the thought of this round too. On the other side of green chili stew is a good hamburger soup. I don't have a recipe for it really, it's just a mishmash of pantry staples, well at least my pantry, and was a go-to growing up. I'm thinking of either merging the two soups together and making a hybrid hamburger green chili soup or seeing which is a winner in a head-to-head -head at our dinner table. The similarities are striking so I'm wondering if both are needed in my arsenal. After green chili stew comes my favorite soup, chicken tortilla. My favorite comes from a local restaurant, and I'll be honest, it's a relatively new find in my life. I had never tasted it up until a handful of years ago, but it quickly won me over. The trick, however, is I can't seem to replicate it to my satisfaction. The restaurant version I love is full of carrots and cheese and avocado and spicy chicken which is fine and seems relatively easy, but is somehow lost in translation. Last winter, I made up a passable version, and I'm looking forward to starting there and seeing if this is the winter I will triumph and have my favorite soup regularly within my reach. The crowning literal topper will be perfecting crispy instead of chewy tortilla strips. The last soup to tackle will be my chicken noodle. I've talked before about my chicken pot pie soup, my version of a classic chicken noodle, and it's always perfect on a cold winter day. However, I'm wanting to take out the canned cream of chicken I use and substitute a whole unprocessed option instead. The homemade version doesn't look too terribly difficult, but I think the seasoning will be where I focused most of my experimenting. I want the seasoning to blend seamlessly with my tried and true family favorite and not alter the taste more than I'm wanting. All in all, I'm looking forward to this experimenting. I'm so glad I learned that playing with my food is almost always a great idea. This is Tanya Gibson for Bread and Butter. Support for Access Utah on Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984 covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Coming up next here on Utah Public Radio is Both Sides of the Aisle, followed by Undisciplined at 1030. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.